Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, March 10th, 2016, the US primaries be crazy edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham. I am joined as usual by one of my regular co-hosts, that would be Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. Hello there, Scott. Hello, especially to all our good friends from Maine to Hawaii. And also, uh, a special guest, no, no Cristala this week, bad news Cristala fans. However, we have a ready substitute uh, decided by the topic uh, in the form of David Dunn, who is also a professor of international politics and a close follower of American politics. Unlike Scott, uh, he is also the head of the political science department and therefore our boss. Hello, David. Hello. Well, it's here. After many weeks of attempting to make it happen, the stars have finally aligned to enable us to do it. We have one single bumper topic this episode, which is the U.S. presidential election, specifically the contest between members of uh, both the major parties to become their party nominee. Uh, The American two-party system has helpfully provided us, therefore, with a neat divide for the episode. First, uh, it looks awfully like the Republican Party may nominate reality TV star, professional rich guy, and Olympic-class boor Donald Trump as its candidate, much to the chagrin and panic of the party establishment itself. Can anyone stop him? Second, Hillary Clinton's second go at a presidential campaign faces a tougher-than-expected fight from avowed socialist Bernie Sanders. Surely both parties can't nominate shouty populists who only just joined? When Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination back in June of last year, not a lot of people took him seriously. And I think it would probably be fair to say, wouldn't it, that not everyone on this podcast took him entirely seriously. I know if we listened back, I probably didn't. And they had good reason not to. Uh, He's never held elected office. He has a history of vocal opinions on policy antithetical to the conservative Republican base, or so you'd think. He has negative poll ratings unprecedented for a successful candidate. And he has a manner of speaking and thinking that might politely be called informal and free associative and which the less kind might call chaotic and unhinged. Uh, During this campaign, he's run to the populist right with high-profile, if detail-light policies, such as building a wall along the border with Mexico and making Mexico pay for it, and denying entry to the U.S. to all Muslims. Meanwhile, he's shown immunity, apparently, from the usual laws of politics. It's impossible to provide a full list of the things he's done, uh, but recent highlights include refusing to disassociate himself from the white supremacist terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan, getting into an argument with an ex-CIA director about whether he would order the army to commit war crimes, uh, and taking time in a recent presidential debate to assure the country that, contrary to suggestions otherwise, he had no problem with the size of his penis. So far, Trump has racked up victories in 15 states, albeit usually with less than 50% of the vote. His closest rival has been arch-conservative Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who's won contests in seven. One-time darling of the party establishment, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, is flailing badly with victories in one state only, plus Puerto Rico, and looks to be dead in the water unless he can score a win in his home state next week. Finally, Ohio Governor John Kasich continues in the race despite no victories so far for reasons best known to the psychologists. So... uh, Is this going to happen? Because, uh, holy hell, Scott, uh, it looks like this is going to happen. And if you want to attach to that question the follow-up, does this portend the terminal sickness and ultimate imminent death of American democracy, by all means expand? Uh, Because I, for one, am concerned. I guess no one sees the apocalypse when it's coming. 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> the apocalypse will not be televised. Exactly. I mean, a month ago, I said, no, there's no way, no way Trump basically comes. The Republican establishment will rally around because they know he's not electable in November, because they don't like a whole range of his views, and uh, they'll have a single candidate going into and beyond Super Tuesday. Well, Super Tuesday's come mm-hmm. and gone. Trump dominated there. He won the subsequent contest, the latest contest in Michigan, as well as in a couple of other states. And he's heavily favored to take most of the big five primaries on March 15th, including the home states of two of his challengers. Right. At which point it's game over. At which point it is. It's ga- it, 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 it is a done deal. It is game over. So probably two things beyond just taking it into, oh, my God, territory. And the first is, all right, well, how did he get this far? Uh, he clearly has broken all the rules we think of standard politics and that you know, a modicum of decency, courtesy, uh, advising his supporters not to beat up hecklers. He's broken all of that. Mm. Uh, Consistently he, advocating the positions that, uh, that, that one would expect the party base to want. Yeah, hasn't felt any great need to do that no, all over the place. No, called one of his opponents a liar. Ted Cruz continues to call Rubio little Marco. And... Why does it work? Probably because he taps into a minority of voters, I emphasize minority for reasons I'll get to in a minute, who are angry, who are frustrated, um, who think they're not getting the best of the economic deal, who might blame someone overseas because trade has kept them from having the decent jobs, because they haven't quite got the home they want. There's always the government to blame, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also not just the immediate economic worries. He taps into something which is poisonous in American society. And it's that poison of the culture of fear that this country, which prides itself on being exceptional and not so great, at the same time always is looking over its shoulder. Once it was the communists that were going to take us down, then it might be the African-Americans tearing apart our anti-cities. Then it might be the Mexicans coming across the border. And so he just recycles all that hatred, whether it's keeping Muslims out whether it's implying that women really aren't the equal of men and shouldn't pretend that they are. So he just plays upon that aggressive, I'm better than you. Right. But somehow, Basically everything that is worst about the worst parts of the American yeah. psyche or indeed any yeah. national psyche. And we can talk about broader reasons for this. We can, you know, like talk radio has a lot to do with it from a generation ago leading to talk shouty, unfair and unbalanced TV. But I think the second thing I'll just want to mention and then pass it across to David is uh, what does it say about the Republican Party, about the establishment? You know, nothing, nothing good. Nothing good. They, they underestimated Trump, as a lot of us did. But even when we saw what, from the start of the year that Trump might be a factor, the party did not organize itself around an alternative. Ted Cruz, they don't like. It wasn't going to be Cruz. They think he's unelectable. Marco Rubio, they belatedly cited up to him, but he was too lightweight. Uh, John Kasich left his candidacy way too late to do more than be a spoiler. So they got to the point, when you get to the point where your 2012 nominee says, you know what, here's our solution. We'll just simply take it to a brokered convention through tactical voting. Yeah. Right? Americans don't know what tactical voting is. That's a European thing, right? Mm. Us, you know, kind of effete types over here talk about it. And a brokered convention is this kind of uh, uh, long-standing, abstract, almost fetishistic aspiration of journalists to cover elections, the idea that you'll get to the excitement of a convention where the candidate isn't decided. But that's, I mean, that's no sort of plan. It's, it's not a plan. I mean, they, they, 
because as you can see, it all relies upon the fact that because the Republicans have a winner-take-all system, you've got to take almost every big state away from Trump. Mm -hmm. So you've got to keep him from winning in his backyard, which is New York. You've got to find some resurrection for Rubio in Florida. Kasich has to take not only Ohio, but other Rust Belt states, and Cruz has to win across the Southwest. Mm. You think all that's going to come together magically? No, it's, right. it's not. It just has the feel of, like, you know, they've fallen back and fallen back at each stage. It's, it's a sort of retreat that ends up in this last trench, and God, God, God help us. Okay, I am, I am now bordering on suicidal. Uh, David, <laughs> is there anything that you can say that gives me the slightest glimmer of hope? I doubt it. Uh, please say what you wish. Uh, probably not, actually. Uh, I mean, again, I I'm surprised that we are where we are, and it's an it's odd set of circumstances that has got us here. Um, no one at the start of this process thought uh, Trump would, would uh, be in the position that he's had. And it, it reflects not only the way in which he appears to be Teflon and the way in which he says things that other candidates would, would be destroyed by, and he seems to thrive on. It's partly a consequence of the, uh, the, the failure of the rest of the field. The rest of the Republican candidates turned out to be a remarkably weak field. Jeb Bush, uh, who was now out of the race, uh, just completely failed to perform to expectation. He mm. was always the, the front-runner candidate, uh, but he was lackluster. He clearly hadn't thought about key positions, particularly mm. with regard to his brother's position on, in foreign policy, and therefore uh, appeared to come across as lacking in charisma, lacking in ideas, lacking in forethought, and disappeared in a puff of smoke. Yeah, and sucked up all that money as well, which presumably would have been the establishment's big pot of reserve with which to, to, to get its candidate ahead. Absolutely. And he dragged down that whole wing of the party with him almost. Uh, and he was given time to actually try to perform. And again, not only did, did he absorb money, but he absorbed time in the race. And only belatedly, mm. the, the attention then swung behind Marco Rubio. And Rubio, as we, as we saw, was overprepared. Uh, with his, with his one-liners that, that were uh, robotically repeated several times, uh, and in a way that just made him seem completely uh, lacking in, in uh, uh, genuineness and uh, lacking in credibility as a consequence. Yeah, so and, and like you know, as you say, well, like one of one of Trump's main talents, if you if, if we're going to call it that, the one thing you can't take away from it is that the man is a bully of the highest caliber. And what he did was wade into a number of candidates in sequence, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio in particular, and bullied them, and they showed that they didn't have the fortitude to withstand that. And one of the remarkable things is that that proved hugely popular with a particular demographic. Uh, in a sense, he represented the mood of anger with the establishment and with establishment candidates, and therefore him behaving in this boorish way uh, reinforced the idea that he was the outsider and, and a champion of the people against the establishment. And so we, we have this remarkable set of circumstances following from that. But is this a death of democracy? Um, well, it, it, it's certainly uh, it's interesting to see wh whether if, if Trump goes all the way, wh whether he would actually, uh, I mean, when he wants, wants to get the nomination, whether he will keep these lines up or whether he will track to the center and actually moderate his position. He certainly has given private uh, indications and in, uh, um, interviews to uh, various newspapers that, that, he, that he's doing this for the, for the show rather than necessarily uh, what he believes. Yeah, there's this meeting he had supposedly with the New York Times mm. editorial board Indeed. that no one's allowed to talk about what got said during it, but that seems like the smoke signals seem to suggest that he... He indicated so he may be he, he may be just a, a very artful tactician and and that, that he's he's 
behaving in a particular way to get the nomination and will track back towards the centre. And therefore, perhaps, if, you, if we ever ended up with President Trump, he would behave differently. I'm old enough to remember the concern of a Ronald Reagan uh, getting the mm. nomination, and many people were, were concerned about him being an anti-establishment candidate, being someone who was lightweight because he was, after all, an actor, uh, and someone who uh, w people had great fears about how he would behave in office. And, of course, now people look back with him and uh, with, with a degree of reverence that, that that's, was, was hard to imagine w would ever be the case living through his eight years of, of tenure. So there's that aspect of, 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 uh, of Trump. But there's also the question, if he did come into power, it wouldn't necessarily be the death of democracy, but actually rather perversely, the, the result of a particular form of democracy in the way in which the, the primaries allow candidates to actually get ahead of steam that wouldn't be the case in any other system because no other system would allow a bombastic billionaire like him to actually come out come into the race as an outsider and get to the position where he has. In parliamentary systems, of course, they come up through, through uh, the, the, the party and... Um, that's the model elsewhere. It's a bigger question, really, about whether it's the death of liberal democracy. And it's also a bigger question, of course, as to whether this whole process results in the death of the Republican Party, that odd coalition of, 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 uh, of uh, very different uh, strands of opinion, uh, evangelical uh, conservatism, uh, corporate conservatism, uh, traditionally a free trade party, uh, traditionally one that of late that, that's actually uh, uh, not done much for working-class Americans, but pandered to their prejudices with regard to God's guns and gays, uh, whether that coalition can continue uh, mm. if, if Trump uh, takes a particular strand of it and runs with it is open to question. Well, that's one of those things that, that, that's really come out in the last, the last few days. There's been a number of articles written about it as people look clearly in there, the fact that it's going to happen. But what it's revealed, and you can see the panic of the revelation in these quote-unquote establishment figures um, as, it, as it dawns on them, is just how fragile the kind of uh, jury-rigged system of the Republican Party's electoral machine and its policy machine ha has been. That The Republican Party has been this mechanism whereby you take the votes of disgruntled, socially conservative, uh, not particularly economically advantaged, often downwardly mobile white people, and put them into this sausage machine, and at the other end comes the Wall Street Journal's editorial page of policies. Um, and that uh, has worked for several elections now, seemingly, and what Trump has done is scrambled it. Yeah. You know, he's revealed that there are a lot of furious people who are not particularly um, thoughtful or subscribed to the Conservative Party or the National Review's uh, um, ideological Puritan principles. They just want someone who's going to get in, uh, put a bit of stick about, give a shooing to the various constituencies, economic, racial, um, etc., that they don't like, and everything else in terms of policy seems to be negotiable. And you can see the moment of realization starting to dawn on them that they have fed this tiger as well that mm. is now free, that the Republican Party has prospered, especially since 2008, but you can certainly make an argument for much longer, by feeding anger, essentially, by encouraging people to perceive political differences in this way that's hugely heightened, often with great disregard for the details of the actual realities of the issue or what their opponent's policies might be, um, and to say, 
Well, all we need you to do is to get more and more furious, uh, to vote for us as we stand athwart whoever it is that we're opposing militantly at any given moment. And now they are surprised when having fueled uh, blind obstructionism and indifference to the facts and a disengagement from any of the detail of policy debate in favor of uh, an overwhelmingly emotional reaction, that this might work to their disadvantage yeah. at some point down the line, you know? But one of the odd things about this is this insurgent candidate, this furious anti-establishment figure, is the most establishment figure you could actually imagine. He's someone who was born into a, into a massively privileged background. His father was a multimillionaire. He went to an mm. Ivy League university. He is a property developer who has scammed the American people through various schemes that he, he's, he's, he's put forward, uh, many of whom have gone bust, uh, the Trump University being the most notorious. Uh, and yet there's no one making the connection between the fact that actually the, mm. the, the, the bombast and the background don't match. Yeah. Well, that's the way you play the system, though. I mean, Ross Perot played it in the early 90s into a very significant third-party candidacy. Um, it was done by George Wallace back in the 1960s by playing on the poison of race. And look, listen, it's not poured all into Trump. If there was no Trump, you still would be talking about this because Ted Cruz <laughs> is effectively an insurgent within the Republican Party who feeds upon that anger, that conservatism, let's be honest, that hardcore red meat religion. Um, and so this is a long-term problem. The, mm. the strength of Ronald Reagan, and I'm not a great admirer of Reagan by any means, um, is that posing as an insurgent but then attacking inside the party, he held it together in different mm. ways. The strength of the people around George W. Bush and the myth of compassionate conservatism was that they held it together, helped, of course, by the national security state after 9-11, there's no one to hold it together now for the Republicans. Right, and they could take some of these ugly, atavistic feelings and channel them into something resembling a sunny, unifying discourse, whatever the, you know, whatever the reservations one might have about, uh, about doing that, rather than just... I mean, at this point, you know, Donald Trump's not dog-whistling anymore. He's just whistling out loud on a variety of these issues. And you know, for, the other thing that, that I kind of feel about him and why I worry about it most, and I, 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 it's hard for me to work out if this is just the identity politics of like a white-collar intellectual, that this is what like, I hate... I, I find most worrying about him, or if it actually is a difference with him that 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 is more severe uh, and worth noting. It's that like people are trying to pass his policy positions, like things he's said in the past, things he's saying now. Like, what's he really attached to? Uh, what might he move on? You know, is he like is he stealing the lunch of the Republican Party because he believes in say uh, you know a bigger role for the state or the distribution of health care more uniformly, etc. I think that engaging with Donald Trump's policy positions is almost, I think Ezra Klein put it like this in, in, a, in a really good article on Fox News, but it's, like, it's almost like a type of category error uh, in a way. Like, you know, the, the reason why he's frightening is because he knows nothing about any of these issues. He learns nothing about any of these issues because he doesn't want to. He doesn't think about most of the things that he's asked about. He just thinks aloud and then changes what he's saying the next minute. And most worryingly of all, I think there's a real possibility that he can't think about these issues in the way that we were like Ronald Reagan seemed like a golden age mm. of committed self-educated conservative yeah. uh, autodidacticism uh, by comparison with, with, with where we are with, with him scary. right now yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's that feeling that that we're dealing with someone who is 
on some fundamental, almost cognitive level, incoherent yes. uh, and therefore driven only by ego and the noise of the crowd is capable of almost anything in I a way that scares yeah. me much more than even like some Ted Cruz, yeah. who's like a smug party hack who's basically posing as a revolutionary radical because it's what's getting him ahead right now. Yeah, fundamentally, Trump is too stupid to realize how stupid he is. Mm. And I think actually, uh, also, what, what, what follows from that is, is, given his reality TV background, that you can imagine anyone trying to give him advice, you just turn around and say, you're fired. And therefore, we really would be in, in serious mm. difficulty with him. Yeah, and once you look into his policy positions, you know, of all the, you know, for all this talk about him being the one who's speaking to the common man and, uh, you know, uh, reaching out to the parts that the other parts of the Republican Party can't reach, you know, his fiscal plans are the most insane yeah. uh, tax slashing. You'd have, to, you'd have to literally close down huge portions of what the federal government uh, currently does just to dent uh, the numbers that he says he will cut, okay. uh, at the same time as promising, of course, that he will not cut anything. So, you know, it's uh, uh, to the extent that he is being advised by anybody, it appears to be the most extreme fiscal conservative people. Uh, but I, I don't know whether to worry about that because he might do it or to worry about the fact that he's unlikely to even know those are his policies because he doesn't <laughs> engage with that, uh, that level of detail. Well, just a heads up. I'm going to make you all put the rubber on the scary road. So after we discuss the Democrats, I want to know whether you think Donald Trump can actually be president of the United States in 2017. Okay, well, uh, let's do it. If Hillary Clinton ever makes it to the White House, one thing's for sure, no one will be able to say the American political system didn't make her work for it. Uh, after eight years as an unusually policy-active first lady in Bill Clinton's presidency, she became senator for New York, ran a presidential campaign that was thwarted by Barack Obama in 2008, then served as his secretary of state for four years and is now back in the game for 2016. With the cultivated aura of her crushing inevitability combining with a thin Democratic bench to deter almost all opposition from the race, her only opponent was Bernie Sanders, an independent socialist senator from Vermont who spent decades playing the role of left of the left wing tub thumper for government measures to address economic inequality. She might justifiably have been confident in closing the deal without breaking sweat. But it hasn't exactly worked out that way. Although Clinton has won most states contested and has a healthy lead in delegates, as well as far more support from Democratic elected officials, Sanders has put up a surprisingly strong showing. He's shown great strength among white low-income voters and overwhelming support from the young, uh, and his lack of traction with non-white voters, a large part of the Democratic primary electorate, uh, has been needed as Hillary Clinton's projected firewall to steer her towards victory and him towards uh, defeat. On Tuesday, however, uh, he pulled off a victory in Michigan that both utterly confounded pollsters who had Clinton ahead in the polls for weeks and raised the possibility that maybe he would do better in the Midwest than previously imagined. With the important large states of Ohio and Florida voting on March 15th and the media narrative change in the meantime, the question on all of our minds is, is Hillary at risk of stumbling again? David, are you buying or selling shares in Hillary Clinton this most unsteady of weeks? I think I'm keeping my money in the bank on all fronts in this election because it's so unpredictable. And I think actually... The, the, the You're no fun, the, <laughs> although the, I might the, hire you to run my pension fund. Well, indeed. Uh, the, the, the stumble was ob obvious to see in the 8th Democratic debate where she looked rattled uh, after Michigan, where she uh, reversed her 
policy of attacking Trump uh, as, the, as the main threat to her and switch back tactics to actually attacking Bernie Sanders. And she didn't look at all in control. Uh, she's not a natural campaigner. She's not someone who is naturally charismatic, unlike her husband. Uh, she's someone who hoped to get the job through her resume. It reminds, she reminds me of, of George Bush Senior in 1992, who had the most uh, uh, fantastic CV in terms of actually his qualifications for the job, but unfortunately, of course, it doesn't go on CVs. It goes on how you do with the, the populace. Mm. And you kind of suspect her, like him, of having this like internal sense of impatience with the fact that they're being subjected to this to, to this process. It's like, well, like, don't you people know what I've done to get here? Like, can we please just crack on with me being president now because this is really starting to grind my gears? If you know your Shakespeare, she's Coriolanus in that sense. Yes, she she and of course she's been here before, and she's she must be feeling a sense of deja vu from eight years ago, thinking, oh God, I thought I'd got this sorted. Um, yeah, but she's actually, lucky she's facing him and not another Barack Obama because then. You you feel like it really would go through her fingers. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, and, and, and that's right. And, and the fact that this cranky old guy fr from Vermont who actually sits as an independent in the Senate uh, describes describe himself as a democratic so socialist, the fact that he's still on her tails is, is actually a real indictment of her. It's not that he's going to get the nomination. It's just that, that he continues to show her to be to be weak and vulnerable in a variety of ways. Um, he's, he's forcing her to tack to the left in a variety of issues, so she's abandoned the, uh, her support of the, the, the uh, Trans-Pacific Free Trade Area, uh, and, and that leaves her vulnerable to in the general election when it comes. Uh, she has uh, also uh, failed to... to, to uh, uh, Demonstrate that, that, that she is a, a, a anything like a, a, a visionary candidate. She is that she is putting forward ideas of continuity when there's a mood for change. She's saying she wants to f uh, follow through on Obama's record when actually many people are frustrated that Obama didn't do more. Uh, she's offering experience when people want novelty, uh, and she over the email thing she looks shifty and untrustworthy. All these things could actually come back mm. to bite. She her. was just asked that in the debate, was she not uh, about the fact that only thirty something percent of the American people say they trust her, or is that how many say they don't trust her? One or the other. The figure wasn't good. Is my point. Uh, and a, a very large number of people polled say they don't trust Hillary Clinton, and she kind of uh, responded to the question by saying that she accepts that it's the result of a communication failure on her part or something to that effect. Well, that's not great. And, and that's not great when your candidates, when people are, are saying that they'd rather have uh, Trump th than her. I mean, against I any other candidate, you, you'd think that, that, that uh, uh, she would be much more attractive. But, but uh, there we are. I, um, I'm a Sanders person, but I'm a pragmatist. I'm going to have to stop you right yeah, there, you Scott. That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't seem well, like the yeah. most coherent you're, position. You're having, having coruscated Donald Trump for a lack of coherence, you, I'm going to ask you to you, talk us through a little bit you, more precisely how you, this is conceivable. You follow, you follow ideas, but still you buy shares in Clinton. Um, I was surprised last week by Michigan, which is the biggest upset in 32 years in U.S. primary history in terms of overturning uh, mm -hmm. the pollies. But Sanders has to do it again and again because the Democrats have stacked the duck through the superdelegate system. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got to win about 60% of the delegates to overcome her lead in superdelegates unless they suddenly mm. switch, yeah. switch yeah. camps. And, and also, she's won... Uh, a lot of primaries so far by big margins, which yeah. means that even if he was to win 
a lot of the ones to come by small margins because they're proportionally allocated exactly. in the democratic system, yeah. uh, she would still be ahead, even on the ones who are appointed by the elections. So he needs not just to win future ones, but to win some ones by margins that represent the yeah. He's got to an even bigger hurdle than he had in Michigan, the polls, in terms of taking Illinois, Ohio, Missouri. Then he's got to do it in Wisconsin. New York is probably gone because that's, in effect, her backyard. Right. Well, I mean, if she doesn't win that, then, yeah, exactly. you know. So then he's got to do Pennsylvania. She really does have problems. And if he gets Pennsylvania, then maybe he takes it to California. There's a lot of this. So, the, it, you know, just as a pragmatist, she's going to win. But the question for me is whether we get a feel-good moment or a divisive moment in terms of the Democratic Party. Mm which is obviously set up for eight years for a Clinton, mm. uh, you know, the heiress apparent. Initially, I would have said, yeah, you know, Sanders is a feel-good moment because progressives like myself can come in. We can say that he took a few of the caucuses, a few of the primaries. We didn't expect it because we thought, by God, he's just way too honest to get away with this. He's not actually a natural campaigner. He just says it like it is, but not in a way that Trump does, in, any way, in a way of actually expressing mm. views honest views on economics, on social issues. And we feel good about it, but now it's like, wait a minute. It's not just the feel-good moment. Now is it something bigger? I think, therefore, that when she finally takes the nomination, which I think she will by the end of March, the question will be whether Sanders and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party swing behind her, probably in exchange for getting their voice heard on the Democratic uh, platform at the convention. Mm. an indication that her campaign team will be more broad church than it is right now. And everybody unifies then going into November. So that's the dream scenario, at least for the Democratic establishment. There is that better place to pull it off from the Republicans oh, yeah. right now. And I, and I think they will. And I think they will. For, because the, the nightmare scenarios is that, and this is where I'm saying, you wonder where ideals counter pragmatism? If Sanders believes that he really can win it, and he really pushes it, and the supporters really believe they win it, but then they feel a sense of bitterness if this doesn't come off. Do we face another moment like 2000 when, of Mm -hmm. course, at that point, the insurgent candidate was Ralph Nader and his candidacy effectively, along with some very dubious ballots in Florida and Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court? Well, it's okay, Scott, Scott, because we have a 4-4 Supreme Court. Clearly, we're we're perfectly placed to to, to address some of this. But let me just bring it back to one other thing, because we talked a lot about maneuvers and so on. I'm just going to I'm glad that Sanders raised the issues about the 2008 crisis and what was done to get us out of the crisis. Because personally, I'm conflicted about that. I can see that what was done was necessary to keep the ship from sinking, but a lot of people responsible for the crisis didn't pay the price for it. They got rewarded for it in the long run. I'm glad he's brought up issues like climate change to simply not just simply be a lot of words, which is what we had from the Obama administration, but to talk about possible action. I'm glad he's talking about a decent education system in the states where higher education is now found affordable for many people. So I'm glad he's brought those issues up. Do I think Hillary will take them on board to heart and do something about them? Not so sure about that. Mm. But at least in contrast to Trump, where the space was basically opened up for poison, here it was opened up for at least a little bit of honest policy discussion from a guy who said from the start, I will not campaign. I will never run a negative campaign ad. So far, hasn't. My concern is, is that while those, all those things are legitimate and in some ways go to address a lot of the, the, that angry mood in the country, um, my concern is that, that he damages Hillary in a way that potentially 
uh, is, is problematic for the end result of the election. But also, actually, he makes the younger voters, who are the main stay behind his support, uh, potentially stay at home or, or support a third-party candidate like Ralph Nader, that, that 2% go in 2000, and then the, the result is, is the worst of all possible outcomes. Hmm. I, I don't think he will. I, I don't think he will because he's brought in energy into the campaign. I mean, 81% of the young vote yeah. in Michigan, which was huge. And because I think Sanders is the type of politician who won't play the spoiler like Nader did in 2000, I think he'll come in and say, look, we've disagreed on certain issues. We'll continue to express those disagreements. But this is obviously the best way forward for the country. But he's damaging her now. And, and that's the, it, what, what we will ultimately face in November is a, is a, a fight between Clinton and, and Trump. And, and anything that damages Hillary now is, is, is bad for that race. Can I uh, can I come in to, sure. to, to and this is I know this is not what I would ordinarily think of as my normal role in in, in politics, but I want to say some positive things about Hillary Clinton here. Um, she's, she's been characterized as the candidate of no, we can't uh, this time round, which is part <laughs> of why she's suffering from uh, this inspiration gap, uh, which she's been accused of because Bernie Sanders is able to rile people up and get them ready to go. Uh, so are various people in other parts of the political system. It would seem she doesn't have that string in her bow, it seems. Um, Although I am confident that she probably will w w win the nomination anyway. But I guess there's two things that worry me uh, about Bernie Sanders' campaign that echo things that worry me about some of what's going on in very different form on the other side of the spectrum, and indeed that worry me about the general tenor of the political conversation. And they're, they're, they're two things, um, really. One... Uh, is a kind of indifference to the reality, the genuine reality of a divided country with a real, sincerely held plurality of views about what basic principles should be and how policy, as implemented by the government, should be derived from that. And there is a tendency to imagine that everybody who wants to compromise on hardline ideals, be they progressive ideals or conservative ideals, is guilty of watering down progress towards the one true right place, whereas part of the task of a political leader when faced with a country where people really, really disagree about stuff is to try to think about how you can govern by having just enough of an eye on the sensitivities of the people who aren't voting for you to stave off civil war and collapse and anarchy. Like Obama has tried super hard to do that and speaks probably more about that issue than any other issue. And he's still just about managing it. So like, one thing that worries me a little bit about Bernie is that he's getting people hyped up who kind of see the progressive future over the mountain, uh, but don't necessarily seem to acknowledge that leading the country towards it is a fool's errand. The second thing uh, is a kind of indifference to institutions. Like I think one reason why people are angry to the extent that they are, um, and there are, there are several reasons, and much of the anger is justifiable, um, is that so few people seem to engage with what it's necessary to do to actually 
change laws and implement policy and roll out a program in the polity. So people stand for office as congressmen or they run for presidential nominations and they want to get elected and get in. And they sell these prospectuses of sweeping grand change. And then, you know, if you get in on Bernie Sanders' manifesto, then you will immediately hit the sand when it comes to implementing any of it. And then two things happen. Either you try and have a literal revolution uh, and you roll over the existing institutions to just do what you want to do anyway, which is, uh, you know, for various reasons, a little threatening as a prospect, or you compromise with the reality of the uh, the divided institutions you have, the plurality of views in them, and a hugely watered down, if any, version of what you're promising happens. And then the screams and cries of betrayal uh, and loss and rage from your original constituency rise up against you, flow back into the political market for the next person who's going to spin you a yarn about what the system should deliver for you. Um, and so the anger and frustration machine churns on. So the one thing I will say about Hillary Clinton is, God knows it's not an inspiring message, and that is part of her problem. But of all the candidates in the field, she's the one who has her clearest eye on the fact that it's a really divided country, and if you want to change things at all in the political system, there are like, there's a balance of institutions that you're going to have to work with. And maybe, just maybe, telling people everything that comes into your head about what you will deliver for them isn't a good idea, because ultimately you're going to have to let a lot of people down. Well, I, I mean, there's a couple points I'll take you up on. I mean, first of all, I don't think Sanders is as quixotic as you make it sound there. I mean, he's been in D.C. since 79. Yeah, he was a socialist. Yes, he was an independent. But he's also worked closely in terms of legislation. I mean, he was very, very important in Obamacare. Very, very important in terms of the negotiations that went on. And he knew he wasn't going to get everything he wanted out of that health care package. But he at least got a bit more out of it. But I think the second thing is the bigger thing. And I know, I know you're the ultra-pragmatist, and I appreciate that. But, look, there's times when you've got to say that you have to go beyond pragmatism. Um, there have to be lines drawn in the states. Bernie Sanders is raising, and I think quite rightly, the fact that Black Lives Matter shouldn't be just a slogan that Black Lives Matter taps into certain issues, economic and social issues. Oh, come now. I mean, Black Lives Matter had to hit his stage and disrupt his events to get him to acknowledge that, uh, that this was an issue. You make it sound as though Bernie Sanders arrived in this race to provide a voice no, 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 for no. them. What I'm saying he has is one issue, what economic I, inequality. No, 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 no. He's no, been no, forced no, to make race a bigger part of his ab campaign. Absolutely not. The fact of the matter is, is that Bernie Sanders actually is arguing about economic inequality and he's arguing about the effects of it. Right, and he's one of those old-school people who says, take care of the economic problem, you take care of the racial problem, which is why so many race campaigners have a... So, you know, wh why is Bernie Sanders struggling more to get the black no. vote than any other vote in the well, whole that's contest because of the, that's if he's in it to be the voice of black That's black because of a lot of the Democratic Party machine. If you actually look is it Sanders false consciousness on the part of the black vote? <laughs> no, I'm not saying... Look, I'm saying that there's reasons why they might support Hillary Clinton, and there's reasons why I support Sanders, but to simply say that Sanders is a one-issue candidate, Absolutely wrong. What Sanders argues about is about the responsibility of American institutions. That's why he's so ticked off over 2008. That's why he's raised the questions about things like policing. That's why he's raised fundamental questions about the role of government, the way that it works. Issues that you and I are sitting there and, 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 and debating that we acknowledge that those issues are wrong. Once you characterize them as just one issue and playing to someone's basically false aspirations, 
then you fall into the trap. But he can't do any of the things he says he's going to do because he's going to have a Congress that won't vote for it. And if yeah. you promise people an agenda that you can't deliver, then where, like, what, what is the, yeah. what is the e- responsibility? Even if, if a miracle happened and, and more than 20% of the people voted for candidate uh, Bernie Sanders, he would just be a completely moribund president and would just be another eight years or four years of, of, of gridlock. Uh, th- this guy uh, has been useful at putting issues on the agenda. There's no way on God's earth that, that, that the American population will vote for him. Vermont is not the rest of the United States. And, and he's got no prospect of, of, of getting any, anywhere as a, as a consequence of that. And yeah. again, it just fuels the idea of division. The only sensible, potentially sensible candidate here, the only one who actually is, could uh, um, bridge that divide that, that Adam talks about, as is, is, is Clinton. And yet, by, ironically, as a consequence of the fact that she's not lying to the people about what's possible, she's coming across as lacking in charisma and lack, lacking in vision. Yeah, which tells us everything we need to know about the particular political moment that, that, that we're in right it's, now. It, it, look, you're, you're Give ar- me the last word, Scott. You're, you're, right, you're argue, you, know, you argue on the one hand that there's something fundamentally wrong with the system, and then you come out and you argue as Clinton-centrist that we've just got to keep it and play with this system in a very pragmatic way. Bernie Sanders, of course, if he became president, which isn't going to happen, but of course he's not going to be the quixotic aspirational. He's going to make deals. He's going to cut. But he's actually going to bring issues into the fore at the very start. That's what the difference is between him and Clinton. Clinton is steady as it goes. Now, I'm at the end quite happy that Clinton will be president rather than Trump, trust me. But I think she will be a better president, a better president, and the party will be better if you acknowledge that, yes, you hold up the notion of aspiration, because that notion of aspiration, for example, in the 1960s, is why we did make advances in civil rights and in race relations, when others would have said, look, you got Southern Democrats there, you got to be pragmatic about what you're doing. And in the 1990s, although Bill Clinton was a pragmatist, he had to actually hold up that notion in the early 90s, that at least he was going to take America away from where it had gotten to, in terms of that small government vision. So, Look, not asking for three cheers for Bernie, but at least acknowledge the space that's there that might make things better rather than worse. Okay, I'm feeling the fierce urgency of now from you, Scott, uh, and, and more power to you. Let's, uh, in the minutes we have left, uh, we're going to do a, a quick round the table about what the results that we expect are. Who are going to be the general election candidates? Who's going to win? I'm going to go first. I'm going to say that it's going to be uh, Trump-Clinton, and I think it will be a surprisingly comfortable Clinton win. I've had a lot of arguments with some of my friends on Facebook who say, well, it was, it was, it was a big surprise that Trump won the nomination, wasn't it? Uh, so who's to say he's not going to surprise us again? Uh, and, you know, I'll put an asterisk in it and say that, that it's possible that's true. But first of all, he's got so many negatives, and I've got to think they're going to drag him down. But secondly, just the things he has said even in the length of this campaign. I just have to believe that if someone who's competent uh, cuts those into adverts and puts them out, that the, uh, the population is going uh, you know, to hear that and change course. Okay. Uh, well, I agree that it's going to be uh, Hillary uh, versus Trump. Um, I, and I, I would like to, to immediately endorse your conclusion that it will be a comfortable win for Clinton. What I... Uh, I'm concerned about though is that there's a long time between now and November and Clinton has a lot of baggage and mm. there's a lot of issues and that the email scandal 
uh, uh, issue and other aspects of, of her tenure as Secretary of State, uh, or indeed uh, ghosts from Bill's past, may come out and, uh, and, uh, and, and haunt her and be an uh, October surprise in a way that, that, that may alter the result. But I was, I'd still, if I was forced to bet, I'd go for a Clinton victory uh, over Trump. Good. And, and can you even imagine if something Bill Clinton did cost her the presidency right now like as, <laughs> as, as the sort of the final punctuation mark on a life so afflicted by thwarted ambition that would be quite something and by quite something I mean horrific and tragic let's for, for the whole world <laughs> let's end it on a note of harmony Trump versus Clinton Clinton wins uh, can a man who doesn't seem to know who the KKK is get any share of the African American vote can a man who wants to build a wall with Mexico get a significant share of the Hispanic American vote? Can a man who has been derogatory about women on numerous occasions get the votes of a significant portion of half the population? Mm. I don't think so. Can a man whose brain basically doesn't work run <laughs> the most powerful country in the world? Okay, all right. wasn't going to go that far, but I mean, can a man who doesn't have the support of the Republican establishment also triumph? I, I, I take David's caution about the unexpected. I always expect the unexpected, but Hillary Clinton was uh, stupid over uh, the way she handled her emails, which I've known many people to be stupid about in other positions as well. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a smoking gun offense that's going to sink the campaign. So yeah, for all the uh, pessimism y'all have expressed, you know, it's President Hillary in January 2017, and at least a bit of a brighter future than what we portended today. Okay, well, we're all on the line for it, so let's check back later. I think we set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please subscribe to us also on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com slash pollworldview to see article links, links to our shows, etc. My co-hosts have been David Dunn. Where can people find you on social media, David? Anywhere? Do you have a, do you have a portfolio presence? <laughs> well, if you want to track him down, uh, t take a look around. Uh, you can also find him on the Guardian website this week. He's just been writing about drones, correct? And Scott, uh, tell him your tell him your things. I'm with Political Worldview's partner, EA Worldview, the best little news and analysis website in the world at eaworldview.com, and you can track me down on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA. I've been Adam Quinn as always. I'm Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook if you want to separate me from the others. I'm also at Adam James Quinn on Twitter. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department, University of Birmingham in England. We will be back very soon. We certainly hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.